of Colorado and the It's a beautiful day out here at Little Beaver Brewery. Here with my friend Carl Geeky. Hey, Carl. Hey, good afternoon. Right, we both uh, elected for the Wainbows today. Cheers. I know you're a Little Beaver fan. I, uh, um, I am. You're kind of into the, the darker stuff sometimes, too. Yes, so. they, they have a great selection of uh, darker brews in the wintertime. It's yeah. seasonally appropriate. Yeah. What types of, uh, like, I had the coffee one over your house one time. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, their coffee beer. Or what I thought it was. Like, I thought it, I thought I had like a coffee beer over at oh, yeah, your place. Yeah, we had a maple time. stout. I think. Oh yeah, the maple stout. Maple those stout and uh, gosh, we go with their cheat day a lot, which I think I think they brew maybe with like brownies or something. Uh huh. But yeah. it ends up being pretty thick. It's probably more of a winter type thing. It is think. a winter. Yeah, it's a little bit hot. Ninety degrees out here. You don't want to be sucking down a, a brownie stout. Yeah, no, that's thing. gonna be a hard pass. Yeah, but uh, as usual, it's a fun time out here. See some families sitting out on the patio, sitting downstairs. So good day to just hang out and chat. So yeah. Uh, so thanks for coming and, and talking to me today, because I, you and I have talked a few times about what you've done with education and um, yeah. involvement, and I just found that really interesting. So just thought of people might find it interesting as well too and i'm excited to be here see what's going on so so um so yeah i guess just starting with what you do spanish teacher sure um well i am uh i'm a spanish teacher at west high school here i teach spanish one and spanish three um one of my spanish ones is eighth grade so it starts before school um Prior to that, I was president of the local teachers union, the Unified Education Association, for four years. Prior to that, I worked at Community Chittix and Evans every day, teaching uh, Spanish one and Spanish two, driving the district. Okay, I didn't know you did that driving thing. Oh yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, every yeah. day I drove the first year from Community Chittix and then down to Evans, and then the next year I drove Community Evans and then back into Chittix. Okay. So I did two years of that. That was great. Um, prior to that, I worked for uh, I worked for at Cedar Ridge Elementary here in the district, teaching fourth grade bilingual and uh, was lucky to work the last year at Brigham uh, Elementary teaching fourth grade bilingual before we made the jump across Main Street to uh, a brand new facility. It was great. Um, prior to that, I, uh, it sounds like I've been at like 17 different jobs yeah, in the I, district. I actually hadn't realized this. So. Yeah, I really have. I've worked uh, fourth grade bilingual. I've worked uh, middle school and high school Spanish and I was president of our teachers union um, in a lot of different buildings. And then uh, before that, I did a couple years at ISU for my uh, master's degree in Peninsular Spanish Literature, which is super marketable outside of academia. Um, not at all. Um, <laughs> it turns out not many employers are interested in the literature of Spain. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was going to be a career change for me, but I ended up back in education again. I taught for five years at the high school that I graduated from, um, teaching Spanish one through four. And... Uh, all throughout my college career, when I was doing my undergrad, I found myself working um, as a teacher's aide or as an after-school coordinator of a, like a tutoring program or just something like that, and it just seemed education was the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess... So that's the preview, working today, going back. Yeah. So let's go the other direction. So let's... Uh, so starting off, you're from, um, where'd you grow up? Uh, Dakota, Illinois. Dakota, Illinois, um, okay. And the country outside of there, Dakota is the high school, K-8 through 12 elementary and high school district that I went to. 
um, which is where I had my first job for five years. Uh-huh. So, uh, so you long matriculation. And you're you were on a cow farm, right? Yeah, I grew up on a uh, dairy farm. We did Holstein farming, uh, registered Holsteins, and that was a familial thing. My dad did it. My grandfather did it. Um, yeah. And so then what led you to uh, not take up the, the family business? You, you, you wanted to do Spanish teaching instead? or how did... Yeah, so that's actually the opposite side. So my, um, my great-grandfather on my dad's side was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. My mom uh, was a 37-year uh, special education teacher. My aunt is a special ed- Well, I don't know if she was special ed, but she taught her in the St. Louis area. My uncle taught in uh, British Columbia his whole career, his wife taught. Um, so teaching is really kind of a, a half of my family okay. kind of deal. And, um, oh, I have another uncle that teaches. Um, but then the flip side of that is that, um, that we were farmers. So it was either farming or teaching. And not that I felt constrained by my parents' choices, but um, I really couldn't imagine my life off of the nine-month, three-month schedule that teaching provides. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, when I was in college, my friend was like, I'm going to be a math teacher. And I'm like, I could teach Spanish. So uh, I became a Spanish teacher. Yeah. Ended up teaching my brother and sister. Okay. My sister had four years of Spanish with me in high school. Oh, really? They were that much younger? Yeah, they are that <laughs> much younger. And uh, my brother had two, two years in high school. One of them was with me. Uh-huh. In fact, they were in the same classroom for a semester so it was me my brother and my sister all in spanish too that's fun that did, they, did they uh show you any respect yeah yeah they did. <laughs> they're, they're good people uh i okay. think one time my brother sassed back at me and i clapped back um and i later got an apology from him uh directed by my mother okay who uh explained to him that you don't challenge the teacher even if it is your older brother yeah that's so. interesting i was in my dad's class uh he taught electronics in high oh, yeah. school uh, electronics and SAT prep, and I actually can't remember if I was in there for one semester or two, but the one thing I remember is that we had a conversation about whether I was going to call him Dad or Mr. Moore, Yeah, and I, I just we decided Dad was probably fine, Yeah, but he would not answer to it in class, and it wasn't <laughs> intentional. He just didn't hear it. Right. I, I'd be like, I, it was a, um, it was a, what would you call it? We had different stations. It wasn't instructor-led. It was yeah. student-led. So we had different electronic stations set up. And you could just choose whatever you wanted to do. You yeah. could do soldering. You could do programming. You could do these like logical circuit boards, do all kinds of different stuff. And then certain things were worth a certain number of grades. You get assessments periodically. And you just sense. had to, just during the year, you just had to get a certain number of assessments. And then he'd average those. And if you weren't happy with it, you could try to do more to bring your grade up. But he was just more roaming and doing things. Yeah. And so when I would... Uh, I would just like raise my hand and be like, Dad, Dad, nothing. Mr. Moore, but like, yes, yes. Yeah, he <laughs> oh, what do you need? So yeah, you get in that you get in that zone. Um, but I never asked for any special favors or something. Brother would be a little different though. I'm trying to imagine my my kids uh, with, with their oldest one being the teacher. But <laughs> well, I, I also always had cousins in a class because my dad's one of nine, um, and I'm on the older end. Of the, I'm the second oldest of like I don't know. 20 or 30 some cousins I have okay. to count like okay. and it really takes a while to do um, but I always had a cousin in class and other students would ask them if I graded them differently and the answer was yes they got no grace so if it was not <laughs> correct it was not correct whereas other students I would you know like oh you made that mistake twice I'm only going to take a one point off not if you're if you're related you get two family. points off that sounds so, good sounds good it's like the opposite yeah all right so you left the farm you went to university yeah. you're teaching yeah. there at home and then uh 
And then what brought you out of uh, the area you grew up in? Well, I'd been there for uh, five years uh, as, a, as an educator, which was great. I was starting to get involved um, in, professionally uh, with, like, the school improvement committee and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I'd been there for five years. Um, my wife was working in the same district, so we, I mean, we were driving together to work every day, and we bought a house. Uh, and um, we both kind of looked at each other. Um, some of our friends moved away, and we looked at each other, and we were like, if we don't leave now, we are never going to leave. Um, and we'd both grown up in the community. And uh, so, you know, we were like in our early 20s, and I looked at ISU, and they had an assistantship available. Mm-hmm. Uh, teach one class and then get your master's degree paid. And I, that's, that's one of the major drivers for uh, salary schedule sure. and education is continuing education. And so uh, we took a leap, and uh, I applied, got accepted, and we moved down here. Um, Stacy ended up getting a job. Uh, which was fantastic. She got the job in the middle of summer, so we knew we had employment, but um, it was she had employment. I was going to be a poor college student, which was a whole thing. Um, and then the exciting thing was our house sold right before that big market burst mm. of, about you know 15 years ago, and sure. uh, we ended up getting out of out of that mortgage and lived here for two years. And uh, <laughs> and I said, uh, so you've been supporting me for two years uh, while I do this. I mean, as I worked at growing grounds here in town, but really didn't have much of an income. And uh, I said, well, what do you want to do next? You can pick the next two years. And she's like, well, let's have some kids. And I'm like, oh, all right, well, here we go. That's, that's not two years, sir. <laughs> no, you got taken. It's, it's more like a 25-year <laughs> commitment. But um, So we stuck around here in town. It's been great. This is a great place to live. It's a great place to work. Um, it's a great place to raise a family. I mean, both my wife and I are apparently career educators. Um, mm-hmm. Stacy's been working at Olympia South this whole time. And... Uh, you know, we're coming up on our 18th-ish year of teaching, and uh, this is a great place to work, a great place to be an educator. Yeah. Strong schools. We, um, so so our family's moved here at similar times. So we moved here in 2003, mm-hmm. I think, was one. so that, that was about the same time period. Yeah, we were 2007, so okay. just a few years before us. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, it's surprising that, it's surprising all of the things that are here in Wilmington Normal that make it a nice place to live. Yeah. It's actually one of the big reasons why I do this podcast is because it's just it's fascinating to see all the people and they're doing things that they're passionate about. Lately, yeah. we've been mostly politics because that's sort of been the season we're in, but um, <laughs> that's by far not everything. Uh, just the 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 restaurants, the nonprofits, the arts, the just it's it's just a really nice place. People think I'm nuts growing up overseas and. They're like, wait, so you've been to all these places. You're living in central Illinois. And like, I don't know. It's just yeah, it's a, a nice good, place. It's a really great community. Great schools. Yeah. Good schools, parks. Yeah. yeah. The, the school systems here, whether you're District 87 or Unit 5 or even some of the surrounding school districts like Olympia, are all really quality. And I think mm-hmm. that's partially driven by the fact that we've got ISU, which is the premier teaching institution in the state of Illinois. And there's so much reciprocity. You know, we've got student teachers that come into our classrooms so often that bring fresh new ideas. Sure. Teachers are able to go and take classes at ISU because of that, uh, the tuition credits that come along with taking student teachers. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've got two really strong school systems just within this small community. And, you know, you really have the opportunity to choose. Do you want to send your child to like a kind of smaller 
feeling school and go with District 87, more a little more centralized, or do you want to go with Unit 5, which is a much larger school district? Mm-hmm. Um, but both have great opportunities and both have great um, great systems of education. So. Yeah. This might trigger you too, but uh, if it seems like there are some pretty decent private schools too, people are pretty happy when I when I hear about them. Uh, I wouldn't make those choices about as them. well. <laughs> no comment. I, I don't know anything about the private schools. Okay. Um, I'm just going by my uh, when my my friends who have their kids in private school seem to. There seems like there's some options to choose from. That well, there are, certainly are options. Happy. And, yeah. and you can see Central Catholic is a very large facility. It obviously has good uh, yeah. good attendance. You must pay a good tuition in order to have such nice facilities. I, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, well, that was a pivot. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so then you, you, you bounced around to different schools here. Is that pretty common for, you mentioned traveling from school to school. Is that a pretty common thing for starting off uh, uh, foreign language teachers to do? I just think about it because that's what my wife did first teaching German. Yeah. So, so there was a while um, in the district. So I started in the bilingual program, which had me based at, on the south side of town at Cedar Ridge. Um, and they've got a strong bilingual program. I got, actually got hired to teach second grade and then they switched me to fourth. Um, because I'd had experience in high school and it seemed like a more appropriate placement and it mm-hmm. worked out great. But um, yeah, when I was driving, um, Unit 5 used to have a foreign language program that started in sixth grade. Um, and they took exploratory classes in sixth grade and then they would take the first year of a foreign language split over seventh and eighth, if I understand correctly, which I could be wrong. It's happened twice before. Um, but You mean uh, just today or is it? No, in my life. Um, so, so maybe this will put this in your calendar. Um, but the, the district has chosen to kind of shrink that and condense that down. And so um, when I think when your wife Susan was driving, um, she was teaching German, right? Yep. And so they, what they did was they moved. Um, that would have been in seven, 2007 seven, through 2009. 2009. Yeah. yeah. So in mm-hmm. those days, they were having people drive um, to teach a couple classes in each junior high. And then they made a programmatic change and moved them to the high schools. Um, so the children now in um, in foreign language in eighth grade come to the high school, get dropped off for zero hour, and then get bussed back to their uh, school. Okay. okay. So it's it's been interesting to, to watch how that evolved because um, when I taught in the schools, like when I was teaching in the junior highs, um, my students primarily were... Um, not in music or band. They didn't have access to music or band because that was being offered at a similar time. They kind of didn't have to make a choice. When they moved it to the high schools, now there's less access to the general population because you have to be driven there in the morning and you have to be there at 7.30 instead of it being part of your scheduled day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen an increase in the number of students that are in like band and choir that are in my class in the morning. So it's been an interesting kind of shift that I don't know would be noticed if not um, for the fact that I'd done both in multiple mm-hmm. schools. So it's been interesting. Yeah, yeah. Most of the year, it seems pretty... It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to move between schools. The, the two things that seem really irritating to me, if I put myself in 
in the shoes of someone who's doing that. One is having to work out of someone else's classroom yeah. and move your stuff along with you. Yeah. And then two is winter. Like yeah. <laughs> February is pretty rough to have to deal with the elements multiple times a day. You know, for me, uh, when I was traveling, I taught, um, when I was at community, I taught my first two classes there and then left and taught one in East Junior High. Um, but each time I was in community, I moved from room to room. So I wasn't even in the same room uh, okay. when I was in the same building. Um, and for me, it was always a fresh start. So, like, I might be having a rough day in this building. As soon as I walk out that door and I walk into a different building, it's like, well, this is a whole new thing. Sure. And so, for me, it's it was nice to have, like, kind of the movement. Um, I also really enjoy moving. And so, like, going from room to room was fine. And uh, the other thing that, man... I'll tell you, prepared me for was it pushed me to have everything be digital instead of um, paper because I was not trying to schlep copies yeah. from one building to yeah. the next. Um, so I tried to really put all of my files online so that when I would open something up in a different building, I could print it there if I needed it instead of like having a paper copy at my desk in this building and needing it when I was somewhere else. So mm-hmm. really, I learned to work with basically everything online before I had to work with everything online. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a good tra- it was a good training tool for me. Yeah. So I want to deviate from the chronology a little sure. bit because what you just said leads really well into something else that uh, that's been on both of our minds, which is what's what we've learned over the last school year. That right? was with, with COVID. <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll we'll backtrack a little bit and talk about sure. what it means to be the president of the of the union and all those kind of things. Okay. But. Um, but yeah, so you had you had a, both perspectives. You had it as a parent, and you mm-hmm. also had it as an educator this year, trying to yeah. cope with with COVID impacts on education. So yeah. just now that we're uh, fingers crossed, hopefully phasing our way out of that. Yeah. What what stands out to you as the the biggest moments, the biggest lessons? Uh, sure. Um, okay, so I think that the first thing that we should contextualize is the difference between. Um, the school year when we first went on lockdown, we were in a hard lockdown, and then this year. Sure, and we yeah. just finished. So the end of the 1920 yeah. uh, school year. So the yeah. end of the 1920 school year, everyone was caught unaware, had no idea this was going to happen. Um, you know, whether there's blame to be laid there, who cares? It's, it is what it is. Um, and so as educators, we were directed to do no harm to children. So um, at the time, everyone was so stressed out about, you know, like actually surviving and not knowing what was going on um, that a lot of us as educators decided that our job was more to be there as supportive for students um, as opposed to worrying about whether or not they're going to meet um, standard goals that we don't have good ways to assess in this environment, right? Like we have no real way to assess um, any of the standards in that environment, nor do we even know if those standards are appropriate because they're supposed to be taught in a live room and all of a sudden we're trying to figure out Zoom and mm-hmm. Google and all this stuff. And some people don't have good internet or have a computer Absolutely. that can run Zoom and all this stuff. And, and yeah. so we were sending packets home and we were doing you know, we were doing our best to meet students where they were and to help them um, in the context of not doing harm to them. And that was um, that was interpreted to mean not only like harm, like emotional or social harm, but also um, academic harm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I I was very upfront with my students that they were not going to be graded on anything that we did negatively. 
that they could make a positive impact on their grade, but that whatever they had when we went on hard lockdown, that was what they were guaranteed to get no matter what moving forward. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting thing because I had some students really engage with that because of it. Um, I also um, had an opportunity be- to work with some students that were really struggling in person and design like a special, re- like I, we called it like credit recovery. And we went through all of the things that we would normally do in the year with these students and made sure that they understood them before we ended the year. And they were able to move their grades from failing in the traditional environment to passing mm-hmm. in this digital environment because as educators, all of a sudden we had all of this freedom. We were no longer constrained by time. We were no longer constrained by bells. Um, which was another uh, neat change to be able to go to the bathroom whenever I wanted to. That was I, I, I felt really spoiled for a number of months about that. Yeah. Um, so it was it was really cool to see that opportunity and that shift to watch students that were really concerned about their grade that had been really struggling in an in-person environment be able to really pivot and do well and succeed mm-hmm. in that digital environment because all of a sudden I had time that I that. I didn't have prior yeah. to it, meet with them. And there's there's certainly students who would be hesitant to come and ask for help when all their peers were watching, right? Right. They're not gonna they're not gonna leave. Uh, you know, when their friends are leaving, it's it's a lot of social anxiety to walk up and say, Hey Mr. Gakey, can I talk to you for a minute? And then they have three or four minutes to get to their next class. So they yeah. know they're gonna be late to their next class and they're gonna have to walk in, in front of all of their friends with a pass that says talking about my grade in Spanish. No one wants that. Yeah. So um, it was nice to kind of have this freedom. And uh, it was also a big uh, learning curve for students to shift this idea from like, oh, I'll talk to you tomorrow to I'm gonna email you, right? And uh, that was our primarily means of communication with students. And so to watch students um, develop like the skills of emailing that they didn't have before then. I mean, like prior to this pandemic, I would email a student and they wouldn't respond because they didn't check their school email because uh, what yeah. 14-year-old <laughs> checks their unit 5 email? None. Yeah. They they look at their Instagram, right? Well, all of a sudden when this is our primary means of communication, that became important to them. And so I started getting I mean, I never got email from students prior to this. I mean, it's always like just one from parents. or two. Yeah. yeah, sometimes parents, but even not that very often because I'm pretty proactive and I'll just call somebody if there's something going on instead of waiting for an email because that's not fun. Um, but now I had students emailing me and like communicating via email and I don't know, it was a weird thing. So like that was the whole thing. Then summer came and, you know, we started to kind of open back up again and uh, and in my in, and we had a myriad of things happening all across the state because uh, we had a lack of federal oversight on what was going to federal direction and what was going to go on. Yeah. The state gave local control to the entities within Illinois to decide what they were going to do. And so different districts were making different decisions that are um, contiguous geographically, but different in their philosophy, different in their decision-making processes. Um, so, you know, we had one district that was going back full-time. 100% in person with some mitigations in place. My district chose to stay 100% remote, as did District 87. And so, you know, as a parent, I was navigating what it meant to, to get my kids moving in this process. As an educator, I was navigating what it meant to 
bring my students into this process? How do I create a learning environment for students that I've never seen before? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I bring them into... Um, I, I, I'm not sure... Um, if you can imagine how excited 14-year-olds are to be getting up at 7.30 to log on to a Zoom <laughs> to talk about how to say good morning in Spanish, it's not a real high motivation. Conjugation's um, like a cup of coffee, man, right. for me. Just love it. it you know, and, um, and then there was a whole, like, as an educator adapting to what I see of students is not a face, but a little circle. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're not turning their cameras on at 7.30 in the morning. They are not getting up at 6.30 to get camera ready to turn their camera on to sit and talk about Spanish. Yeah. It's not happening. Um, so it, it became um, kind of like broadcasting for a while as we developed relationships um, across the Internet. Um, I was also working with a student teacher um, the first semester of this school year. Um, so it was also navigating how to bring her into this relationship so that she could be successful teaching children. At the same time, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. So it worked out. I think it worked out well. Um, And uh, I think what's so... I wish I had journaled throughout this whole experience so I could look back and remember what we knew and didn't know at certain points. Because it's so easy now in hindsight where we've learned more about the virus and what increases the contagion risk. Yeah. And... I made I made an effort not to follow it really closely because yeah. I personally didn't have to make very many decisions based on it. Yeah. We we already knew with our family we were going to be primarily staying at home all the time, wearing masks in public places, trying to follow the state level guidance as well as we could. Um, for my for my job, what we were expected to do as leaders was really prescribed by State Farm. Yeah, and I also trust State Farm leadership to look at the to look at the evidence in a very uh, um, unbiased way and to make the best choice for the safety and productivity of the company balancing all these things right so i didn't personally have very many choices i needed to make so i didn't watch the science very closely as it unfolded right yeah people would say to me like oh gosh our positivity rate's going up i'm like i I don't i don't know i don't watch it (laughs) i'm just sort of letting it be um but i think i think now if we look with our current knowledge things like it's really not, the risk is very low for children. That seems to be present in the data. Um, risk of transmission from physical objects is very low. Yeah. But we didn't know that in April, May of 2020. We had no yeah. idea. I remember going to the grocery store and like taking off all of my clothes like in the mudroom after I got yeah. home, putting them directly in the washer, and yeah. then taking a shower afterwards and sanitizing all of the stuff yeah. because you thought it, the disease might be all over it and um, you know it, you just, we didn't know at the time and so it's uh, yeah. that was particularly hard for our family um, because of uh, the way we intersect with a number of places so my wife was full time um, in person uh, and, and uh, our children and myself were at home learning and teaching and then eventually, midway through first semester, I had to go back into the classroom. Well, at that point, we didn't know what sort of transmission could happen mm-hmm. between people like that. And so um, so we were, I was very concerned that I was going to bring it home and give it to her, and she would take it and give it to her kindergartners. And also very concerned that she would bring it home and I would take it and give it to the 140 students approximately that I work with. 
Um, I didn't have 140 because some chose the same home, but you know there was a, a large group of people yeah. that I was going to be interacting with um, on a daily basis, and so. Yeah, we were very careful. We'd come home, our clothes, we'd wash them, take showers right away. And then as we started to learn more about that, you know, that's really not a big concern. It kind of became nice to, to do that. But at the same time that was happening, we were having to make decisions about, like, are our kids going to go back? Well, now we have a third potential risk factor. And, like, when are they supposed to go and when do they not have to go? And it was a, it was a lot of decision. We had the opposite. Uh, we had we were making decisions left and right sure. throughout this whole thing. And sure. every time the school changed something, we had to pivot and do something else. So, like when I had to go back to teaching in first semester, we had to find someone to watch our children. And then when we got sent home again, that went away. But then we had to find someone for second semester. And yeah. I mean, the the way that teachers pivoted and in their own personal lives as well as their educational practices is something that I think that we are maybe not talking about enough um, in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't I don't say that to get sympathy about like like we had to make a bunch of decisions and find a bunch of babysitters. But like I'm not I'm not a unique case and. And most educators have some sort of family, and so we are making those decisions yeah. left and right based on a decision being made somewhere else that we didn't know about generally until very soon before the announcement. Well, and then f- furthermore, you're the central point of contact for most of your your kids' parents too, right? So yeah. they're talking to you, trying like almost as if you're the person who you know makes these choices about in school, out of school, balance yeah. of things too. So you got to feel that directly. And then, and then furthermore, you have to figure out how to convert all of your your material into something that works virtually, right? Well, it was... You have all these lesson plans you built up over a decade. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, I mean, we figured out that out pretty quickly early on, how to do that. Um, Haley Summers and I, she was the student teacher that I work with. Um, we figured out how to do that. But the, the challenge then became, how do we make that stuff ready to go back to in-person mm. on a moment's notice? At the same time, once we're back in person, we were doing the hybrid A-B schedule where we saw students two days a week and then they had the Wednesday off, so we were back to virtual again, and have that be able to come back to digital at the drop of a hat. Um, and so we were, we were trying to figure that out. And the third complication that I had specifically was um, the student teachers weren't allowed back into the building. So um, Haley had to continue teaching from home while I was in the room with the students. And so we were navigating all these things. Um, and I'm just one person. Yeah. You know, Unit 5 has um, approximately 800 full-time educators. Um, and by educators, I, I'm, I'm defining educators right now as like teachers and um, people that are in charge of students throughout the day. There's even more than that for paraprofessionals and um, other job categories. Yeah. I remember you mentioning how you were... You basically had to run your class like a computer lab. You couldn't figure out any other way to do it. So even the people who are in person, yeah. if part of their class and their student teacher is not there, they really have to just be on their computers anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, that's what we, that's what, as Haley and I were talking about it, we determined that it would make more sense because we didn't know if or when we were going to close down again, and we ended up closing down again pretty dramatically. I'm sure a lot of people in the area remember that. Um you know, we had to have something that was easily transitionable between those environments. Um, 
and uh, it 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 worked out pretty well. I'll tell you, I had um, a lot of my students by the end of the year achieving exactly where they should be. Um, I had some that struggled and, and didn't um, didn't get there, but that's not unusual in a given school year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the difference this year was just more pronounced because students that didn't want to engage in the work were able to just completely not engage. It's very difficult to be in a classroom and hand in a piece of paper with nothing written on it. Um, however, if you're at home, it is not difficult to just not do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easy to not do something. I had that with one of my children where I had uh, his teacher text me and just say, oh, by the way, he hasn't turned any work in this whole week. Yeah. And I came and I was like, what's going on? And he said, oh, my gosh, I just totally forgot. I totally forgot to, yeah. to hit those buttons on that thing. And yeah. he was stressed and upset. Like, it's fine. Like, just... Just do something. It was reading responses. And I said, just write her an email. Yeah. Just read. Have you read something? Yes. Okay. Just write an email about what you read to her and send it off and just say sorry. And, um, but yeah, if you were in class and everyone else was turning in their papers and you just didn't turn a paper, you would know that you would know that you were not doing that. Right. Right. And so, so we, what I found is that there was just like this catastrophic, like I'm not doing anything. Okay. Well I can't affect that. I can send you an email every single Wednesday asking you to get on the call so I can talk to you about your work or lack thereof, but, you know, at some point, you know, they just choose not to. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think that... I, I, I'm going to go ahead and just take a moment right here to talk about something that I've been hearing a lot in the news, um, and that's the idea that there was learning loss that mm-hmm. happened this year. Yeah. Um, that students didn't learn, or that in some capacity this was a lost year for education, and it's just false. Students learn things all the time. Right, like one thing I never assessed was my students' ability to um, put together a PowerPoint and then <laughs> give a PowerPoint um, virtually. Right, um, that's not in my curriculum. I teach Spanish, and so I don't generally assess them on that. This year, my students were able to at home develop presentations collaboratively on their own and then present them to the class via Google Meets. That. That's a skill that's a real-world skill that you Mm -hmm. have to have in the work environment, especially now that lots of offices are choosing to have people work from home. Yep. That's a skill that we, I mean, I didn't even, like, that concept didn't even occur to me to teach them that prior to this year. And now my students know how to do that. Now, I never gave them an assessment on whether or not they can do that. So one might say they didn't learn it, right? But they learned how to do that. Uh They learned how to manage their time at home. Um, They learned all of these things that are, that are like soft skills, but also like real work skills. And I'm just going to say my students achieved at a similar rate this year that they would have if they were in person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I just challenge anyone listening to this to combat that, um, combat that false narrative that learning loss occurred. Certainly there was some learning loss. Um, maybe it was for a different group that normally wouldn't experience it. Um, but that's that's talking about something completely different, and that's talking about advantages in person or at home. Yeah. And But learning happened. This was not a lost year by any means. Man, my mind is just racing now that you brought that up. I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, gosh, I don't even know where to go with it. So... Your point Stump about the host. So, sorry, stump the host. <laughs> no, there's just so many ways to go. Um, one way, yeah, given the presentations and 
working to deliver digital materials. That's definitely a skill set of the future. Yeah. Uh, that's what everything is going to be in a, in a number of realms, right? Yeah. Not in every profession, but in a number of professions, that's going to be so key. Um, also, the I was thinking about the playlists that they called them in. At least that was at Washington School, where in the afternoons they didn't have structured class, but they just had a list of here are the five things you should yeah. do. You should read. You should do this math worksheet. And um, I think they were almost selective. You need to just do two of these five things yeah. or something like that. How much more realistic is that kind of assignment when it comes to lifelong learning than you have to give da 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 that, that's how everything is. No one gives you, as an adult, here's your list of the five things you need to do, Carl. They say, here are the, uh, here are some options you have. You could read this book. You could play this video game. You could talk to this person. You could be a part of this. That's how life really is. Yeah. You have a, a variety of development opportunities, to use, a, to use a corporate phrase. You have a variety <laughs> of development opportunities open to you. You have to decide what you're going to pursue. Or you could just say, screw all that, not do anything. Yeah, just no consequences, right? And just mess off, mess around, and then you can see what happens too, right? But that's that's what life is, and I I think it's actually kind of cool that my fifth grader had that sort of independent learning experience. Yeah, that was a huge thing for me once I got out of college, and I realized, wow, no one's gonna force me to learn anything anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, how about <laughs> just going to college, right? Like, yeah, you get to decide what you study. Sure, you get to and, choose what classes you go to. Yeah, um, and that was that was really interesting. Um, as a parent to watch my children kind of select the things that they were going to do and what they were going to focus on. Um, I'll also say um, my my older daughter, um, while she was learning, she was always drawing and mm-hmm. sketching. Mm-hmm. And so the, the amount of work that she produced, like at the same time she was learning is phenomenal. I'm, yep. We've got little sketches all over the house that she produced. Um, uh, but you know, one I'll tell you one of the interesting things that is similar is along those lines. I did a genius hour with my Spanish three class, um, second What's semester. That? A genius hour is um, where you you give students twenty percent of their time to do whatever they want oh, sure. um, within some sure. parameters, right? So um, I told my my students that they had to um, they had to research something, they had to produce something from their research, and it had to be related to Spanish in some capacity. Okay. Um, and when we didn't meet on Wednesdays physically, that's when they did this work. Um, and if they didn't want to do it on Wednesday and said chose to do it on Saturday, that's their their business, right? That was part of part of what you're saying is that they they have some control over that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the projects that I received from students were phenomenal. I had a number of students that researched um, like Aztec villages and then recreated them in Minecraft. Um, oh like, wow! Yeah, wow. like they because they enjoyed Minecraft, so they researched like what are some characteristics that you would see in typical Aztec villages, and then built them huh. in Minecraft. Then gave us a digital tour of the village, recorded it, and then as their presentation, and they didn't want to stand in front of the class and give a big long presentation, so they showed us this video as part of their presentation. Yeah. Of, I mean, I mean, that's a depth of learning that would normally not happen in the school year. Yeah. Um, because we had that freedom on Wednesdays to do. Um, it's, I had, it's something I think with the amount of time that people, me and you included, will spend on a video game. Yeah. <clears throat> And when I was studying to be a math teacher, I thought a lot about how there's something there. There's some drive that we have to 
get better at something. Yeah. How do you how do you take that same thing and convert it into what you need to learn for a math class? I actually sure. took a I took a philosophy of education class mm-hmm. on that. It was ed- like education through video game design, and I yeah. designed this uh, this pretty crude video game to teach moral theory, uh, sure, uh, philo- like philosophy one hundred and one stuff. Yeah. It was sort of like Mist. Do you know the game Mist, yeah, 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 where yeah. you go through yeah. it, you click on different adventures, yeah. and it, it brought people through different realms to to try to teach them about different moral philosophies. So, uh, but I. I wish it, I'm sure it doesn't function anymore. It'd, it'd be yep. cool to see that now. But being able to tap it—that's really fascinating that you could, were able to connect it to Minecraft. Fortnite might be a little harder, uh, but uh, there's probably something there. Yeah, no. And, but, <laughs> Spanish I mean, American War, maybe. Not, oh God. No. <laughs> not, not, well, they didn't only do that. Like I had one young lady that wanted to um, compare foods, and so she um, went to um, uh, she went to El Mercado. Um, over at Lupe, is it Lupe's? That's over on Market Street. Mm-hmm. I can't think of which what it is, but there's a taqueria in there, and she ordered tacos and um, a soda, and and took pictures and explained like what she was eating and like developed that. She'd researched food, um, and then she went to Taco Bell, and she did this great presentation of side by side of like this is what when you go to um, Lupita's you get this. Yeah. When you go to Taco Bell. You get this, and the kids, the, the students <laughs> in my class were like, "Ew!" And she's like, "And I got a Baja Mountain Dew." And, <laughs> you know, it was so it was cute to see like things like that. And I, but I had kids making food at home. They researched recipes and tried things. I mean, they, they didn't have a variety, such a such a wide variety. And students were allowed to pursue their interests. Yeah. Um, one kid researched music. Um, another young lady researched artwork, and then. Um, I had some students like recreate art. It was, su- I mean, it was super cool. <laughs> um, but so, you, you know, you're talking about the idea of gamification. Yes. Um, yes, of, exactly. Of education. And that is something that's trending right now. Um, there's a, a myriad of websites that um, allow you to gamify your classroom. Sure. Um, I saw one once. A, a person was running her Zoom class like in a Twitch, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. the, the main thing was you had like the main screen up that she was showing and she was down in the bottom right and she had headphones mm-hmm. on sitting in a gaming chair yeah. and was that the teacher was, was acting like a streamer that thought that was yeah. pretty neat well i i never went to that level um but i, well, I mean that was her that, yeah, yeah that's, her that was her thing you know yeah. she, she might have streamed in her free time and she figured hey i might as well do this for my class yeah. too right so it's pretty neat well we found a lot of websites um, and programs online that allow you to take your content and put it into like a more game-like mode. Okay. Um, and that's, I mean, that that really developed over the pandemic. Um, and so I think the the challenge is going to be balancing, um, bringing that into our practices because you can only do it so much before it's like, oh yeah, we're doing that again. Yeah. So there's like yeah. a. You know, it's like, I guess it's like when um, when I was growing up, you know, like, what day you got to play Pictionary with the vocab you were learning, you know, like, <laughs> it, you can't do Pictionary every day. Yeah. Um, so it's balancing that um, to keep it, to keep it, like, fun and keep it fresh, as the students would say, fun fresh, um, but also, like, recognizing that we have to transition away from Pictionary on the, mar- on, the on the board mm-hmm. to trying some of these, you know, gamification of, um, of education. It was something I was doing... Kind of softly in my classroom, um, when students would get questions right, I gave them poker chips, and they worked in small groups, 
um, and at the end of the day, they recorded how many poker chips they got. And over a, over a chapter, they would compete to see who would get the most poker chips. So, it, I mean, it was something I was doing like IRL. Um, and now it's just moved digitally. So yeah. it's not completely different. It's something I thought about as a math teacher. I have not done my own research on this, so it sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory, but it sounds also very likely to me. The TI-82s or TI-83s yeah. that we used when you and I were in high yeah. school, I think they're still using them now. Yeah, they sure are. Because Texas is where Texas Instruments is, and Texas is also where the textbooks are manufactured, and they got oh, all their man. stuff set up to use the TI-83, yeah. so they don't want to update it. But, man, I mean, those things are just dinosaurs you can do so much more on your oh, phone yeah. yeah and there's such great mathematical visualization and processing software that you yeah. can use that's that's so cool um and to to be limited to that black and white device seems really tragic so that's that was another thing that if i had taken the math teacher route i was going to try to see if i could work into my classes a bit more is how yeah. do you how do you make these things more visually appealing and well, and the, Bring people the, in. The weird intersection of technology and foreign language um, we really got into this year was, you know, if you're doing a paper and pencil test, it's just your brain. But we didn't have that option. So, like, every every student took home tests and worked on tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had all their resources. So we really had to teach them, like, okay, you can, you can submit something incorrectly and we'll edit it together. And that's where you're going to learn. Yes. Um, but, you know, like... They students are able to with their phone Google Translate. I mean, like they yeah. can hold that up and it like on their phone displays what it what it means in English. And so teaching them to to push past that easiest route and 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 struggle and do what's maybe harder was part of our part of our work this year. Um, and we had to do it differently than we've had in the past. And again, more authentic to because in the real life you are going to have Google Translate available right. to you. So we. We talk about that with my with the actuarial exams. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a innovation going on in that space to assess people more authentically of what they're actually going to do. Yeah. So, if the assessment is, you know, name the three steps for calculating a reserve in this type of situation, the answer is, well, I would go and actually look at the law and I would see what it said and I would do what the law said, right? Yeah. Um, but on the test, it's like, okay, oh, can, can I remember and regurgitate what that law says? It's it's not it's it's dumb. It's not actually what you do in real life. But, yeah. So and trying to move it towards higher level thinking skills of like explaining the implications of you know doing this approach this way or describe to somebody you know how you would approach this problem evaluate this solution to this problem these types of things it edit this paper to bring it back to what you were saying write something in spanish and then edit it with me to make it better right let's let's really see where your skills are right now mm-hmm. trust me enough to not destroy your grade and and I will work with you so the learning happens, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's ultimately what we want is to produce it, to produce um, students that are able to read, write, speak, and, and listen and understand Spanish. And there's so much of that that can be done digitally, kind of, but doesn't actually, you know, like, it, it's very obvious um, as an educator when someone has Google translated something <laughs> and submitted it to me as their work, like, yeah. Um, like I just know you know you don't know that word, like or you don't know that conjugation or you don't know that tense. Like you can't do that, so it's not yours. Um, so getting students to you know say like to move past like right or wrong, and to know like this is a process and uh, uh, 
something that we're going to work on together moving forward. Mm-hmm. That's a real big shift in in a student's mind, right? So yeah. um, there was some work in that area as well. All this disruption is a is an opportunity for innovation. If you try to take the silver lining, which yeah. uh, I know that's what you're always trying to do, Carl. You're always trying yeah, to see the, the positives in every situation, yeah. right? I'll ask Stacy when uh, we get back if that's true. Yeah. Well, it usually is. It, it usually is. I mean, I just I think this is an I think this has shined a spotlight nationally on where gaps exist in mm-hmm. the public education system, for better or for worse. Right? Yeah, and. We have a choice now to either address those gaps and raise everyone up and 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 really fulfill the promise of a free public education for every child, regardless of their zip code, or we can go back mm-hmm. and we can return to that. And that that affects so many people in so many different ways. Um, you know, I, I I am highly involved in the National Education Association, and so I have a, a perspective across the United States. You know, here in in, in Central Illinois, you can see the difference um, in internet quality between the people that live in Bloomington Normal and the people that live in the smaller communities outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? That gap was not noticeable until this pandemic. But that gap exists all over the nation. It's not localized to central Illinois. It exists in Detroit. It exists in Chicago, right? It ex- you know, we, we have this idea that these gaps are local or that they're very small, but they are pervasive. And they prevent students from learning during the pandemic specifically, mm-hmm. or they prevent students from learning in in a, in a typical environment, right? We just didn't see it before. And so now when you when you see students trying to do their homework in the McDonald's parking lot to get access to the free Wi-Fi, yeah. all of a sudden people are like, oh, this is a real problem. And so now as a nation, we have to struggle with the idea of, will we address this problem to bring prosperity to all? Or will we continue on the path that we were before? Yeah. It really seems to me like internet is a public utility now. At this point, I say that my my kids, I think you probably had the same experience. If the internet ever goes out in our house, it they don't understand what that means. They don't understand what works and doesn't work when the internet goes out because they'll come to me and say, "Dad, my computer's not working." Well, what's going on? I can't Zoom's not working. All right. And then one of them runs down and they go, "Alexa, what right. time is it? Alexa's like, I can't connect to the internet. They're like, oh, Alexa's broken. Is the fridge still working? Yeah. Is the AC still going to work? So- AC doesn't work. Does the TV work? The TV's going to turn on, but all of our channels are through the internet, so you won't be able to see yeah. anything on it. But can I play the Nintendo? Some things you can, some things you can't. You can't play Rocket League because that's with other people through the internet. They don't have any idea. No, and effectively, it- laptops are useless without the internet anymore. Yeah. You can't do anything on them. So, so- that, furthermore, to rely on that for work or for public Mm -hmm. education there's just this presumption that everywhere somebody is they're gonna have access to the internet and when when that's the case when the new generation is confusing electricity with the internet it seems to me a really good sign that is a it's it's basically a utility it's a necessity right and you know interestingly um along the lines of the internet not working i think it was it might have been the the week we were coming back to school um after a break um, a fire truck drove down our street and it was after the ice storm 
and all of our lines were just a little bit lower, and the fire truck hit oh. our line and ripped our Metronet line right out of our house. Um, and so we lost the internet for the first few days. Um, and I was scrambling to try and find a way to to get internet so that my children could learn and so that I could could work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was calling Metronet, and they're like, yeah, it's going to be like three or four days. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. Tomorrow morning at 7.30, I have to be on a Google Meets to yeah. teach Yeah. at 7.30 in the morning. I need to get this upgraded. And they're like, well, maybe Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. So it was a mess. And, you know, you don't anticipate these problems. And I, I think, like, I think about this from... From the amount of struggle I had as a very privileged person to think like if I was like trying to do this as a single parent or if I was trying to do this as, um, you know, like uh, a, a parent that didn't have as much means, I, I can't even imagine what this would have been like. Yeah. And to make that choice between like trying to keep your kids at home or go to work, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how people did it. It's, I had a, I had a metronet experience too where suddenly the internet went off. And I call them and they said, oh, well, we tried to process your payment and it didn't go through on your bank. And I said, okay, so like, can you like shoot me an email or call mm-hmm. me or something? And they're, and they're like, well, you know, it, your bank account information didn't work right. So we turned your service off and oh, assessed you a fine. I'm like, okay, fine kind of pisses me off, but I'll pay it. But I, I can't work and my kids can't do school. Yeah. So if you could just do me a solid when this happens and just like ask me, then I could. Right. I, I have many. I'm happy to pay. I have a credit card that's set up <laughs> to do this. I don't know. Maybe the numbered or juxtaposed or something, but. No but, hit on Metronet. Really good internet besides that. I'm re- I've been really <laughs> happy with it, but the, the, the point is not necessarily the customer service thing. The point is so much rides on that functioning right. properly. Right. I honestly would rather have my like my water in my house stop working <laughs> we can go buy some water but yeah. i can't go buy some internet somewhere yeah, else it's so. cra- it's yeah. it's crazy um, yeah. how, how reliant we became on the internet yeah. during this pandemic but the um, thing that um the thing that fascinated me about this whole process and it goes to a lot of what you were saying about the innovation and the disruption of it was really pulling apart what does school mean yeah. why do i send my kids to school because there's, there's definitely an educational part of it where I want them to know certain things. Yeah. I think that list is actually pretty short, honestly. <laughs> I, um, there's not a lot of things or facts that they want them to learn there. It's more about the second... I thought about there's also how do you learn and how do you develop... Yeah. What does it mean to be a learner? What does it mean to internalize and grow in that way? And clearly a social dimension to it of getting of being with your friends. There's also a um, trying to put it in a non-negative way. In life, sometimes you just have to respect (laughs) arbitrarily established authorities. Yeah, like no one knows you. They don't know you. These kids don't know you. All of a sudden, they're just like, "This is teacher. Teacher is here. You do what teacher says." Yeah. There, there are just situations in life where there's an authority figure established you haven't met before, and you need to know how to react to authority. Yeah. So there's something with that, too. But with this, man, I all got blown up. And so go back to the very, uh, probably 20 minutes ago, when you said, did people learn? I don't know. In some respects, they did. In some respects, they didn't. Some of them, they learned more. 
Yeah. Some they didn't learn as much. It's it's I, weird. I, I think it shined a light on um, how dependent our nation is on uh, educators 100%. for socialization. One hundred percent. Like yes. Um, so so my wife teaches kindergarten, and uh, we talk about this a lot. Um, at the beginning of the year, the students that she gets. Um, they don't have the skill set to do school, right? My wife teaches them how to do school yes. along with ABC and one, two, three, and how to read because they're learning that in kindergarten. Um, but, you know, in what other situation does one raise their hand to ask permission to use the restroom? No. I mean, think about when you have a toddler and you're teaching them to use the bathroom, you're like, just go! <laughs> you're like, go if you need, leave! And, and we don't take turns by raising our hands to speak. Yes. We, we, we know the way that this functions. Um, Unless it's like an ultra-formal business sure, meeting or something, right? And then you just kind of like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, Gary, it's my turn next, right? You know, yeah. like there's a whole lot of subtlety in that, but you know, like in the in, who walks in a line down a hallway, right? Like <laughs> prisoners. I have to stand right behind <laughs> Eric. Be, and I, I know I walk yeah. faster than Eric. I'm going to why get you, to my destination. Why do you have to stand behind Eric? Well, his last name is yeah, the, is I before mean, you in the alphabet. So, so we teach students these things for better or for worse, right? And and. and but that's partially how our society functions, right? Mm-hmm. You don't just cut to the front of the line at McDonald's. If someone does that, you get real mad, yeah. right? Wait your turn. And, you know, that's something that you definitely learn in school. Mm-hmm. And so there's a whole host of, like, soft skills that are taught in schools um, that affect you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, well, and, that's, and that's why we eventually... With our three kids, our youngest one's in kindergarten. Yeah. And that is eventually why we advocated for him to go in person. Our other two stayed remote. Yeah. We were going to do all remote with them, but he he's a September birthday, so he's already the oldest one. He's the third sibling. He's close to his other siblings, so he he's kind of got the academic part of it yeah. down. What he needed was socialization. He needed yeah. to understand how to take turns, how to sit quietly, and you weren't learning that on Zoom because you just got muted. Well, you can't you can't teach you can't teach that sort of soft in real life skill. Yeah. Over the internet. Yeah. But you know, I I will say I think students learned how to internet do that. Yes. Um, yep. And that's a different skill set, um, mm-hmm. and it's one that, frankly, I'm proud of teachers for because it didn't exist before this. I mean, it, children we're not used to having 25 person zoom meetings Mm -hmm. prior to this pandemic and teachers were the ones that developed how that was going to function and how it was going to work and past that we learned how to pull students into participating in Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. right in a way that there was no pedagogy preparing us for this it was like tomorrow you're not going to be in here anymore and we were like, oh, okay. And so that was that was yeah. something teachers did. Well, I will tell you that the corporate world is, is struggling with that, too. It's not just children. Yeah. We, we don't know how to interact effectively uh, over a virtual environment. We, we can't figure it out either. No. Because you don't know how to pause the appropriate amount of time to Wait have, for someone to unmute? Yeah. Uh-huh. Maybe someone's having... Maybe someone's quiet because they're okay. Maybe someone's quiet because they got interrupted. Maybe someone's quiet because their mic's not working. Right. I don't know why they're being quiet. 
you don't have these same questions when you see someone in person. If you look over and the person's checking their phone, you know they're distracted. Yeah. If they've fallen asleep at their chair, you know they're distracted. Right. If they're kind of just looking at you and just nodding affirmatively, you're like, okay, yeah. Jim's okay with me proceeding, right? You don't get these, and so... Um, yeah, we. one of the things that we've started on my team, we've, we're trying out for a bit, is if you are okay proceeding on to the next agenda item or you just don't have any questions, you just take a random emoji and put it in the chat. Yeah. That's just sort of saying, I'm here. I'm good. Yeah. Because that at least gives us some information. And plus, it's kind of fun just to see all the crazy emoji <laughs> come up to it. It adds yeah. a little bit of fun in the environment. But yeah, any everybody's trying to figure this out. And it's very different than before. People will say, well, telework's been going on a long time. Sure. Yeah, and there's some compl- some companies probably have a culture where they figured it out. Most most organizations, educational, corporate, they, they haven't figured it out yet. Well, We're all trying to work it out. Yeah, telework is different than education, right? Like, yeah. there's a whole, like, we were just talking about the socialization that happens in schools. Learning how to teach that digitally is a whole different, yeah, a whole different skill set. Because in telework, it's it's sort of like what what is the worker? How does the worker electronically communicate what they have of value to the broader group? Right. Versus in education, is how does the teacher? It's the other way. How does the teacher get everything they need out to? Well, the and then people? bring it back, and then bring back and the feedback, bring it back, and, and then, then provide feedback, and then provide learning opportunities. Yeah, based that cycle. On that. Yeah. And yeah. you know what? The other thing that I will say is that. Um, the relationships that um, I developed with students this year were so much different than previous years, um, and, and in most cases for better. You know, like I taught from my front porch. I can count the number of students in my 18 years of teaching that have been on my front porch. Yeah, um, it, I don't need a finger to do it. You know, <laughs> like I don't invite students to my home. Students came into my home. They met my children. Mm-hmm. Right. I met students' pets. I waved at students' parents in the background. You know, I was teaching to whoever was in the room, which is not what we're used to as educators. Yeah. And so um, I, I think that there's some really deep connections that were made um, between students and educators that is kind of discounted Yeah. Um, because of that. Well, it's something that millennials... There's a stereotype of millennials, which I think is true, that overall we have a we really value authenticity. I want to know someone's being authentic with me. I think the next generation, Gen Z or whatever you want to call them, I think it's even more so that where they know everyone has their warts, has their craziness, has their personal life, and people who pretend like they don't just... They're not part of the conversation. You can look yeah. at that with YouTube. To me, the evidence of that is is people who are famous on YouTube. They're just regular people who right. are just fun to watch for whatever reason. Yeah. They're not... They usually are talented at something, right? They have a talent, but they don't act like they're superhuman in any yeah. means. And they're streaming into their bedroom or their yeah. study or wherever they're doing. Um, so kids probably liked that, honestly, now that I think about it. You did mention some awkwardness in terms of if the stu- if the students had their video on, you being in their home well, wasn't necessarily always the most comfortable thing for you. Yeah, you know, like that's I, I mean that's the thing that um, that no one was prepared for, nor could we be prepared for, is that you know where are students going to learn if they're at home? 
you know, like when you think about like we used to designate a place for the phone to be in, mm-hmm. in a home. It was generally the kitchen, right? Like it's a very public place. It's a normal place to be. Well, it's also only conversational. But, you know, like kids had to learn wherever they had space and you know like they didn't get to curate a background as adults do you know what I mean yeah. like a carefully choose what's in the background of their um, of their camera and have a designated place for their camera because they'd never been asked to do that before right it's their personal room and you know like I, I was lucky enough to be able to be on the front porch which was a very neutral place in my home but students don't always have a front porch to learn from mm-hmm. you know students don't always have like an office to go to and probably if there is an office in their house their parents were in there out there doing their work they're doing their work in their office and you know so it was but I also had students logging in to my class from IHOP they were going to be gone during the class period because they had to go to the dentist or go to a doctor's appointment and they didn't want to miss class so on their phone they're logging in I'm, I'm literally I had a kid in IHOP who logged in. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a parent-teacher conference, and I think the dad was in Pakistan. And normally that wouldn't have been accessible to us. Yeah. But it was accessible this year, and we have to capitalize on that moving forward, mm-hmm. that flexibility. And at the same time, we have to recognize that that flexibility is a sign of privilege. And we have to, to look for, intentionally look for gaps so that we can raise people up Past that, yeah. so that it's not a privilege anymore. So that so that this sort of access and this sort of flexibility becomes a norm for people, because that's really where the world is moving to. Yeah. And as long as we continue to perpetuate a lack of access, we continue to keep people in a position of disempowerment, and we need to be empowering people through this opportunity. Yeah. So that gets us into the political side of things. You want to take a break and get another drink before you do that? Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay, pause real quick here. Alright, we're back again. We got refills. What do you what'd you grab, Carl? I grabbed the orange popsicle. Uh, it's uh it's uh Wainbow's with uh, orange vanilla and uh, some lactose sugar. Okay. I got um yeah, I got the sherbet one on your recommendation. So you, you said you knew how they do this? I don't I don't understand how you take an IPA and make it taste like sherbet ice. So I I actually haven't done it myself, but I believe what you add is lactose, which is milk sugar to it, uh-huh. which gives it like a slightly more thick mouthfeel. Uh, if we're going to talk about beer tasting terms, uh-huh. um, but then also gives you like the kind of milky, cloudy appearance that both of these beers have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yours is the Rainbow Sherbert, so it obviously has a more pinkish tone to it. Yeah, mine uh, here has a more of an orangey huh. color to it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I almost went with the. There was a vanilla stout down there, but as we mentioned at the beginning, it's a little bit too <laughs> hot for that heavy of a beer. But this is still light and fresh. Yeah, very cool. Very. I cool. tasted the little bit of almond, which um, tasted like an almond joy candy bar. It was fantastic. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't know how how Chad does what he does. Quite a talent. Very magic. Cool. <laughs> little little beaver magic. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, there's definitely a political element to education as well, too, that, that you know well. I find it I found it fascinating to hear that you've been to D.C. to, to yeah. lobby people, too. So, the, you know, the, 
it drives me nuts. I'll just I'll start off with this. It drives me nuts when I see in media coverage or in commentary when people say, "Oh, well, the teachers' unions are doing this. The teachers' unions don't want to bring kids back into school, or the, the unions do this." And as a as a child of two teachers, both of whom are in the active in the the union, it it irritates me because I feel like it's it. it not that it, there's always everything 100% right, but you have a group that's advocating for the the rights of this profession who can often get mm-hmm. too much asked of them for, for too little compensation. So just to say the teachers' unions are, are responsible for this seems, seems dismissive to me. But um, anyway, just sharing for transparency where I'm starting off. But yeah. How did you decide to... Get involved in uh, in that aspect of, of teaching. Um, the you could have just kept your head down and just taught your classes. Yeah, <laughs> the way I remember it, and I maybe this is inaccurate, um, is when I was at Cedar Ridge, um, I had just a whole lot of students. Um, they were bilingual students, so English was their second language, and they were being held to the same standards as the students. Uh, that English was their first language. Mm-hmm. So all of my students were flagging as needing extra interventions and needing more and needing more and needing more. Um, and I'm only one person. And so if, if I remember this correctly, this is my memory. Um, the, the teachers, the president of the teachers union at the time and the superintendent were there doing a lunch visit. And I asked him when he was going to provide me with a teacher's aid. It just point blank to his face. When are you going to give me a teacher's aid? Because I'm trying to do this in this environment that is, you know, it's really difficult. And having another set of hands in the room to work with these students that need the help, we've identified they need the help, would would be awesome, you know, something along those lines. And uh, he kind of looked at me funny. And uh, the president of the union had listened to me, and she said, are you involved? And I said, no, why? And she said, well, that's the kind of advocacy that we need in in the union. Um, Mm -hmm. Fast forward a little while, and she asked me if I would uh, take over as vice president. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I talked about it with my wife. We were about to have our second baby. Um, And I, you know, so I'm in the district maybe two years, and uh, it's kind of a risky move when you're non-tenured. Um, and we talked about it, and she said, yeah, go for it, and uh, I did, and then found out a few years later that, um, no, not a few years later, shortly thereafter, that um, the current president was about to retire, um, and that the vice president normally moved up into that position, and I was like, oh, well, that's a thing. (laughs) Um, So that's how I found myself after five years in the district as, uh, I think, yeah, five years as president of the teachers' union, um, but I, How do you I, become tenured? What's the requirement uh, So you have to receive proficient or excellent evaluations um, for four years in okay. a row. All right. um, and any time before that, you can be released. Um, and after you're tenured, you can also be released as long as the district provides you with um, a, a plan to mitigate whatever they have determined is a, is a missed opportunity, let's call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they provide you the plan, and they can document that you're not following the plan to improve, then you can be dismissed as well. But you have to have cause. Okay. Uh, prior to your first four years, there's no cause involved. Um, and so, uh, you know, I came from a very small district where, like, I knew the superintendent by name um, uh, because she had Christmas parties that we went to, and, like, you know, it was... She'd gone to, I, I think she went to high school with my dad. So, like, I knew her. And so, like, I had no problem conversing with a, a superintendent in that capacity. And here I am, this, like, punk 20-year-old kid, like, 
you know, asking the superintendent, when am I getting a, when am I getting a teacher's aid because I can't do this by myself and yeah. and you know, it rightly identified as someone to be in that position because I'm not scared to advocate for personal needs. I'm not scared to advocate for the needs of my colleagues or the needs of my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did that for four years, and um, during that time, uh, I became a member. Well, I, I became a member of the board of directors of the Illinois Education Association, and then a member of the board of directors of the National Education Association. Um, and so, through those um, democratically elected um, positions, I my 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 understanding of what it means to be a teacher broadened from you know a small district to a large district that I'm in now to what it means to be an educator in the state of Illinois, where disparity exists from the top to the bottom, from the east to the west, based on your zip code. And then to find out what it means to be a teacher across the nation um, at the national level was was fascinating. And, you know, uh, I know this is a, a podcast about Bloomington Normal, mm-hmm. where we've got it really good. Like, we've got strong teachers unions, we've got strong school districts, strong boards of education that are really concerned about the students and, you know, it, it, it's it's a great place to work, but that doesn't exist everywhere, right? And so to, to learn about that was fascinating and mm-hmm. really increased my desire to make things better here, because even as good as they are, they can be better. Yeah. What kind of things do you attribute as bringing that about here? The good, the good part, the good things that are happening here. What do you attribute that to? Oh, first off, we've got we've got really strong um, teachers unions. Mm-hmm. They're strong teachers unions that work collaboratively with the district as much as they can. Right? That was that's that's been a value for a long time in this community. You know, and you go through phases where it's more prevalent and less prevalent, but overall, that's been something that um, that I think that has really been valued. And when you have uh, I was at a training once, and I'm going to kind of move off. This is why collaboration is so important and why it's so important to have all the people there to make a decision. Uh, you know, ask yourself, which is more important, inhaling or exhaling? <laughs> right? It's it, yeah. You can't. Can't choose. The, you can't yeah. choose, right? And, and so, you know, you know, oftentimes the teachers union comes with this point of view, and the school district comes with this point of view. And if either one of them get their unequivocal way, someone loses. Mm-hmm. Well, real good decision-making comes from the hard work of coming together and finding out that, yeah, inhaling and exhaling are both really important to life. <laughs> and so, you know, you it's called compromise, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what collective bargaining provides us. And the state of Illinois is... Um, has collective bargaining rights. In other states, you don't have that. And so you see teacher turnover where teaching isn't viewed as a profession, right? This is, it, it's, in Illinois, it's a profession to mm-hmm. be a teacher, to be, to be a, a paraprofessional is a profession in Illinois. To, to work in the public schools is to be a professional, regardless of your job category. And that doesn't exist everywhere. And so, and so for me, that's what that's what makes this community special and this community important is that not only does that exist because unions have stood for that, but it exists because there is a current understanding that that, that partnership is more powerful when we are working together as equals as opposed to when we're working together in two different ways. Yeah, and I would think that would need to come from both sides, correct? Yeah. The, the school district would need to come to the union with a perspective 
of collaboration, and the union would also need to come with that perspective yeah. as well, right? Of I think generally they do in this in, in uh-huh. this community. Yeah, um, and we've got good we've got good elected boards. I mean, that's the third component that we don't even you know sometimes we miss is that the school board employs one person, the superintendent. Mm-hmm. The superintendent employs everybody else. So there's this, like, dynamic that the school board has to be on board with that. The superintendent has to be on board with that. The the educators and the employees have to be on board with that. And for the most part, I think, in this this community, they are. They work pretty closely together. So it sounds like you see a really direct direct connection between a... You call it a strong union. It might also caveat, like, a strong healthy union mm-hmm. you, you see a connection direct connection between that and the quality of education that was received no oh, absolutely can, for someone who might be skeptical about that can you try to draw those connections a little bit firmer how does that relate to to students learning more when oh, you've sure. got a strong union okay so um or learning better sorry. learning better sure <laughs> yeah. learning more learning better whatever you want to however you want to call it today learn um, good learn learn well um <laughs> adverbs um so so one of the things that becomes becomes necess- or becomes really obvious as you look across the nation is that places where educators are viewed as professionals, you tend to have job retention. Mm-hmm. And when you have a teacher or uh, a paraprofessional or a school secretary that has been doing their job for a long time, they tend to be really good at it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's one very small aspect, right? Second aspect is uh, when you have someone that's been doing the longevity, they tend to know families. They tend to know children better. They tend to know the people that they're working yeah. with. Be involved in the community. Be involved in the community. They bring the community in. And that's one of the things that, that we're really pushing for at the national level is the idea of a community school, of a place that the school is more than just a place to come learn. That it, it has services that, that provide the community with benefit, whether you're a student or not. Mm-hmm. Right? And so... Um, as I would also think for attracting good teachers too. If you've got a, if you got a good compensation package, got good benefits, yeah. got a good work environment, you're probably yeah, the, people I, are going to come in. Yeah, I think the work environment is the work environment is super important. You know, no one really becomes a teacher because of the glamour and glory and money, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, there, there's a common gripe among teachers that we don't get paid very much. That's pretty true. Um, but I don't think a lot of teachers have the false idea that, well, if I do this, I'm going to be wealthy. Sure. You know, we, we don't tend to tend to do it for the, the money. Um, I, I tried to stop teaching, and I just kept getting pulled back in. Um, <laughs> and so, I, you know, you just find yourself in these positions. You, you want to help people learn. You want to help people do better. And yeah. I think that's, that's really it. Uh, but, you know, no one gets mad about a good compensation package. Yeah. I guess I was thinking more broadly of, like, how many prep days do you have? Well, how long are your prep periods? Yeah. Uh, do you, what's your health insurance looking yeah, like? Yeah, that all contributes you know, to job it, satisfaction. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of job satisfaction that comes along with being unionized, um, with having to find contract, you know, with having to find work day. You know, you can choose to work outside of it, but if you know that at 3 o'clock you can put your work down for the day mm-hmm. and go home, yeah, there's there's a, a peace of mind that, that rests in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't exist in, in other states. You know, I have I have friends that tell me about like their job in Florida or Tennessee or in a state where they didn't have a teacher's union that had collective bargaining rights, and they had to go in over the summer and help build the playground or whatever. My, mm-hmm. 
My really good friend moved to Wisconsin where uh, Scott Walker stripped the collective bargaining rights away from the unions. And uh, she tells me about how they had an extra hour added to their workday just overnight because yeah. they could. And the horror stories that come out of Wisconsin because of that are unbelievable. And it, it, I don't know. I'm, I'm just happy to work in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. So when you're in these roles, do you get time off to do them, or do you do you take a at, at some point when you're involved with the teacher with the union leadership? Mm-hmm. Like, are there full time people working just as part of the NEA? Yeah, there are, but they're employees of the NEA. Okay, they work for the NEA or they work for the IEA. Um, so, like when I was, I was still employed by the district. When I worked for, in, in my belief, I was employed by the district. I continued to get my paycheck from them. Uh-huh. I did work that benefited them and the union. That was the that was the goal, you okay. know. But you didn't um, have a teaching load on top of. I didn't it. have a, not okay. in this because we bargained that. Okay. Um, okay. And in like my wife's district, she teaches kindergarten full time and is co president of her union. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in District 87, I think they get maybe one class period or less or something like that. Okay. They have some sort of reduced load. Yeah. Um, I think when my dad was an FR, when he was a faculty representative, mm-hmm. uh, probably shouldn't say that. I, I think he might have gotten a class to a class period off to do that, but I could be totally yeah, wrong I, on that. But it, it wouldn't be, be unusual no. to have that, right? Well, yeah. and then, um, so like in, in, my national, in my national capacity, I, I wouldn't say get time off. Um, I do travel to Washington, D.C. during the school year to lobby on behalf of educational interests, mm-hmm. um, but I write subplans for that, um, and the union uh, will reimburse the district if they want that to happen. Um, okay. I also served um, on the Illinois Balanced Accountability Measure Committee, IBAM, which probably no one's heard of. It was uh, uh, We were involved in writing the state report card, um, and there were administrators and... People from um, people from IEA, people from IFT, people from Chicago Public Schools, all of these groups came together to write like, what will the school report card look like? Um, and and during that time, I would drive down to Springfield and have meetings and, and come back. But you know, it was during the school day, and I would write subplans for my students for those days. Um, so I wouldn't call it time off. Yeah, um, it's like different work. Gotcha. Um, but I was still doing my regular work on top of it. Okay. So, yeah. No, you really don't so, get time off for it. <laughs> so, so locally with the... Well, I guess when I said time off for it, I should have phrased it better. I meant more... It's not as something you're doing on the side. It's It really is like a core part of what you're focusing on during your work day is, is doing these things. But maybe it's not. Um, but regardless, maybe it's not that important. Um, so with the district, I think we have an under... You talked about negotiating... Yeah. Benefits, I assume like class sizes, facilities, yeah, cl- like kind of your immediate things. Class so. sizes, that stuff generally doesn't enter into contracts um, okay. as often as people believe. Um, the, the, the class size in Unit 5's um, contract is pretty loose it's, um, because it comes, there's a, a cost benefit, right? When you, when you decide that you are going to have a, a maximum amount of students, then generally you have to decide on a minimum amount of students, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes the higher level classes, you have trouble getting them to run, right? Sure. Because there's only sure. 10 kids in them. Well, is it worth the district having someone teaching 10 kids when they can go up to 25? Yeah. So that that tends to not be in contracts as often That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. 
But yeah. then you don't have... So then you end up not having Spanish 4 calculus, AP calculus, AP right. physics no, and stuff because you don't have enough kids in there. You're not, you're not meeting the minimum. Yeah. Um, but when you don't negotiate that mm-hmm. and you leave it kind of flexible, then, yeah, you can have an eight-person kind of class this year. and But then that maybe that means I have 28 kids. Or, like, one year I had 33 uh-huh. in Spanish 1 in the junior high and there weren't 33 desks in the room so (laughs) you know like you have those kinds of pushes and pulls that exist um but it's you know it's it's about balancing it's about it's about being like i was able to handle 33 kids somebody else wouldn't be able to so then you go to iea you go to state level Mm -hmm. what's the state level advocacy look like like what kind of what kind of issues are being wrestled with there oh they were i mean you know, they they worked really hard on a safe return, right? You know, like, there's this narrative that the teachers' unions are blocking this or blocking that. Well, no, not really. Our advocacy was around making sure that it was safe for students and educators in the classroom in the in the middle of a global viral pandemic when you didn't know what was happening. Yeah. Right? That's we, killed millions of people. Yeah. yeah. That we, we didn't know how it was going to, how schools were going to work. We hadn't tried it. Um and so that, you know, when the CDC is saying keep six feet of distance between children and I have a class size of 28, it's not mathematically possible in my room to have six feet distance between, mm-hmm. between children. Um, and so then you have to, you have to advocate to, to say, okay, you need to find a different system for this um, so that we can keep people safe. Yeah. Um, and that takes, it's not easy. None of that work is easy. Yeah. So outside of pandemic times, what what are some other examples of state issues? Um, I'll make one assumption that it's those collective bargaining rights that you were yeah. talking about, trying to make sure that people have a voice in yeah, how their schools are run. Yeah, we've had those since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I think the 80s at least got signed in the law. It could have been. I don't think it was earlier than that, but um, it might have been. Um, yeah. But before that, individual um, associations could gain the right to bargain, um, but it wasn't guaranteed. Um, so that was something that we did. Um, you know, we we advocate a lot around uh, standardized testing and the over-testing of children. You know, their kids sure. are testing over and over and over. Yeah, what happened? Did they just not do that this year? I don't um, remember any testing happening. They did <laughs> not, um, unless you were in person. Okay. Um, in, in person. That's interesting. Some the, but, it, but it varied from district to district because it was all local control. So some districts were, like, trying to get kids to come in and take tests. That's interesting. And I just realized that we had didn't have... No. My remote kids didn't have standardized tests. <laughs> and they're going to be fine. Yeah. No teacher is out there clamoring for the results of the students' scores last year. I mean, that's the other thing about, like, you know, like, we take a standardized test. Okay, good, great. I don't see those scores until the next year. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, there's not a Spanish standardized test. So, un- <laughs> so none of those scores matter you know, I mean, I affect yeah. them peripherally, like, because I teach kids about things like adjectives and adverbs, and they, that becomes uh-huh. part of their knowledge base. But come on, like, we test kids so much, um, and, and it's just, yeah. it's, too, it's too much. Can I, can I take a quick aside to tell a funny yeah. story about it, it? Standardized testing. Ours was called the <clears throat> CTBS test, Comprehensive Test of Basic Skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I always did pretty well at school. It's one of my what something that came pretty naturally to me, and so we had maybe ten categories. There's different different mathematical categories, scientific reasoning, 
you know, I was in elementary school, so I don't remember all the categories. But one of them was spelling. Okay. And so I had 95 plus percentile in everything, and I had 30th percentile in spelling. And so my parents just were like, whoa, like, what is going on there? Is this some sort of issue? Like, wh- what's happening? And mm-hmm. I always just had this, the, for, the, for the rest of my academic career, I had this idea that I was a horrible speller. Now, I'm not a very good speller. It's not my strength. I'm not winning any spelling bees. But looking back on it now, I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. I was surrounded by all kinds of people who spoke different languages. I lived in, in the Netherlands where people spoke with a, a Dutch accent. It kind yeah. of sounds like South, South African. kind of sounds like Trevor Noah. If you yeah, hear, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so also, my I had one teacher from Britain and one teacher from Canada. They pronounce things differently. Yeah. And all of the spelling, the reason I mentioned this, all the spelling test was... Which of the following words has an O that sounds the same as the O in boat? You right. have four things. I was like, well, I can pronounce all four of those words with the same O as it's in boat. And plus, everyone around me pronounces boat differently. Right. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I just would, I had absolutely no clue what to answer. So yeah. I just picked a random one. But then now I'm bad at spelling. So I, this is my, this is my, uh, it's a personal experience, but it's also an example of, standardized testing being applied outside of a context in which it's supposed to be applied. Yeah. Because I don't think that they designed that with the idea that someone wasn't listening to a consistent way of having both pronounced. No, of course. And course furthermore, this is not just me. This is also my father who was raised in central Indiana where people pronounce things differently there. Yeah. And so he doesn't know what the right answer is either because everyone in Terre Haute, Indiana says things differently. Right. <laughs> and so it's also... It's also like biased against people like him as well too people who are immigrants people who are yeah you know like anyway so, I, so when you and i talk about standardized testing and how we're people are over tested there's a variety of problems with it to me one of which is when you have these national tests that just assume that every single person taking them is on yeah. equal footing is is just ridiculous right and and they don't really benefit students in any way mm-hmm. right like how no student is like real sad if they miss the standardized test for that year. They don't, they don't go home, right? But you know what they are sad about if they miss the egg drop. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. that's a huge deal. Or they miss the PE concert, right? To talk about Washington where both of our kids go, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, my my oldest daughter is devastated they didn't get to the talent show. Um, you know, that has nothing to do with any sort of standardized test. Yeah. Um, and that's what she values, right? And, you know, it, you know, there's a certain amount of accountability that has to be towed. But, like, you know, ask the teacher. Why are we asking? Why are we having somebody else design a test? To, it, yeah. it just, it's a mess. So that kind of gets us to national advocacy, yeah. right? Because a lot of those standardized tests are coming from the federal government. They're coming from, from corporations contracted by the federal government, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So is that, is that part of your... You're, yeah. When you travel to DC, part of what you're trying to advocate for? Yeah, we, we advocate for things like we advocate for things like that. We advocate for sensible gun laws. Um, we advocate sure, school for school shootings. Yeah, yeah. For we advocate for um, you know one thing that you you might not realize is the stress level that uh, is on children when they do a code red drill, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, you know like. 
and and that varies across the nation. You know, you've got some places that are calling in like these companies that have people with shooting blanks in schools. You know, like or using um, paintball or you know things like yeah. that. And you know, like it, in our school, my daughter was explaining to me that um, at Washington, where she goes to school, they had to go on lockdown once because there was a loose dog in the school. A dog had run in. Somehow, I, I, I don't know how a dog gained access, but there was a dog. And so they were on Code Red. Well, she didn't know whether it was Code Red for a dog or Code Red for, mm-hmm. you know, a threat to the, to the school. And so, it, and so talking about, like, what that means federally is something that is, in my opinion, super important. Like, yeah. Because it, it affects people all across the nation, the idea of having a Code Red drill. But, what does that even mean? How are we going to implement that? How are we going to make sure that we're not causing harm to children by doing that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you you described to me one time a really something I hadn't heard before. I thought it was absolutely fascinating about the relationship you have with the social with social security. How you don't get social security? Yeah, I don't. Um, <laughs> so there's a there's a um, there's a thing called GPO WEP. Um, it's the windfall provision that affects a very small number of, well, about half, maybe less than half the states. I don't know the exact number, but it affects some states that use a, a, a state-level, like, retirement plan. So, like, I pay into a state-level retirement plan. Well, because of that, I can never collect Social Security. So I generally, in my life, have held a second job paying into Social Security. The entire time I was not employed by the school district, I was paying into Social Security, I can't collect that. Mm-hmm. Or if I do, my pension is reduced dollar for dollar mm-hmm. based on that. Um, you know, my wife worked in the private sector for a while and has some Social Security built up. We, we can't get that. Um, people that are going to receive benefits from a spouse that dies that has paid into Social Security for years and years can't. And it's my understanding they can't receive that either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it exists this idea that... Um, Sometimes that you know you're gonna double dip or whatever, but it, it, you can't. You can't. Yeah, we don't. We don't pay Social Security at our teaching jobs, but if we have another job, we always pay Social Security, yeah. and we can never get that money. And you mentioned that uh, I probably won't surprise. I don't think you're shy about the fact that you're you're a liberal guy, but that's yeah. a, that's a place where you found some common cause with Rodney Davis or the, the Republicans in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rodney Davis has been working to to get rid of uh, uh, GPO WEP for a long time. We, I'd love to get that over the the finish line. Yeah, yeah. sometime soon. Yeah. So uh, it's just, I think it's cool whenever people from different political persuasions can come together yeah. in a, a point of agreement with that. Yeah. So yeah, would that have to be a national thing or is that? A, yeah, it's a national thing. Yeah, it's so it's, it's national. A- so it's a it's a big lift. Uh, it's something that the NEA has been working on for years. I've been an NEA director. For, I think this is my fifth. This is my fourth year. I'm starting. I'm finished. Just finished my fourth year. Starting my fifth. Um, and we've been working on it every year, and been working on it prior to me becoming an director. So, um, yeah, grateful to anyone that's willing to get excited about retirement benefits uh, <laughs> for a group of people that you know no one really talks about. So. Yeah, I mean the the good news is we do have a good retirement system here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So, so what's it like to be a, a lobbyist? Like, what's the so you go to Washington? Mm-hmm. Is there 
like a room you report to, like the lobbyist room, and then you get to get allocated to the place? Or what, what do you what are you doing when you spend your t- if you spend a day lobbying? What are you yeah. what are you doing? Okay, so um, this is it, this is an Illinois experience, which is different than other other states. Um, so when I go out for for the NEA. Um, the National Education Association, on Thursday we have what's called uh, Lobby Day, and we have a, a briefing in the morning. So um, they provide us with the topics that we're going to lobby on. Um, we have research that they've done. Um, we have fact sheets, and uh, we we learn more about the topics in the morning, and then we schedule appointments with... Um, when you say we, sorry, that's people... Is that people from... All the states that have come together on that Literally, day. Literally, yes. Okay. There's someone from every single state, I think, every single state. And uh, we have uh, the Department of Defense, I believe. They're, um, we have a federal education association that works on bases and things like that. Okay. Um, so there, we have we have people that come from Alaska. We have people that come from Hawaii. We have uh, one woman that comes from England. Mm-hmm. And we meet Thursday morning. And we talk about what the lobbying topics are. And then... Mm, it's about a hundred, maybe two hundred of us. I want to say, okay. um, dispersed to Capitol Hill, um, and so in Illinois we have, uh, like I said, we've got a strong teaching union, and so we have um, a team of about fifteen people that are there, and uh, we schedule with, we divide up all of the reps and senators, and we meet with them and talk to them about this, uh, these topics. We have. We're lucky that we have a, a lobbying assistant in the organization that schedules all of our meetings for us. And then in the morning, we, we talk about, like, well, who's, who's got time to meet with who and where do these, you know, overlap and who can go to this one and who can go to that one. And mm-hmm. we go to Capitol Hill and we lobby. So it's a so it's a meeting that would be on the senator or congressman's calendar yeah. where they would show up knowing they're meeting with the yep. NEA. And, e- okay. Either that or we meet with like a, um, a, a staffer a staffer that is in charge of education. Okay. All right. Um, and depending on depending on the the person that's what happens. Some some people don't want to meet with us. Mm-hmm. They're not interested. Um, and so we generally drop off a packet of information because you know we're going to teach even if uh, you don't want to talk to us we'll yeah. give you the information okay um, yeah so it's a little different than I think there might be a perception that someone's you know, walking off the Capitol front steps and you come and accost them on the way to their car or something and no it's a it's, scheduled it's a scheduled meeting. business meeting it's a scheduled meeting yeah it's like yeah. a scheduled meeting where we sit and wait in the reception area until someone is ready to see us and then we yeah. go into a small room and we talk about issues and generally at the same time we ask the staffers, what what are you guys working on? What do you need our help with? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At least where there's a good relationship, Try to be right? collaborative yeah, on that we, as well. We want to yeah. work with them as well. And, you know, and that's a that's a unique Illinois experience because of the number of directors that we have. Other people have to schedule them. And there's like one person for the whole state that tries to meet with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really lucky in Illinois because we have such a strong union presence. But... In other places, they don't, don't have that. So. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of. There's a lot of big topics there. Things that are take a lot of change, national, state, local level. Do you have a number one thing? If if you if Carl was king and you could just change one thing, what would, what would be that one thing about education that you would uh, that you would adjust? Well, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> um, you know, I would say. 
I would say equitable funding across the nation. Um, Illinois bases it on property taxes, and in my mind, that's a really regressive way to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think there's anyone in the United States that doesn't value education. I don't think there's a lot of people that say education's a, a crock, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a lot of people that say, oh, I don't want to pay more for that. Um, and so in Illinois, like, if you don't own property, you don't contribute to that, right? And so I, I just think, I think, I think education is a public good. In the same way that we talk about utilities are public goods and everyone should have good access to quality utilities, everyone should have good access to quality education. We shouldn't be talking about school buildings like that were built in the 50s at this point. We shouldn't be talking about whether or not children have air conditioning in their cla- in their classrooms, right? Like that should be a thing. You know, access to computers should just be a thing. Yeah. Access to the internet should just be a thing. And I, I guess I just would I would want there to be a way that in the nation education was viewed as a way to to move your social status and that it was a promise that was really fulfilled mm-hmm. and not a promise that that was fulfilled dependent on where you live. Yeah. I will say that for for our particular school, for Washington School, Washington Elementary School, it, it does make me feel a bit guilty when I think about it. Um, I wonder if I wonder if it's something I should have taken more seriously when I realized the way that the way that the Washington School District is structured. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean it goes Oh, one, we benefit tremendously from having the those large houses. Uh, so for people who don't know, it's at the corner of Tawanda and Washington Street. That's where it is. And the district moves, it goes east um, to Clinton Street, I think, last I looked. Mm-hmm. I don't know how far south it goes, but Oakland School is south, so I would imagine it doesn't go too far towards Oakland Street there. Um, north, it definitely goes over that whole golf course that's there. Mm-hmm. It has those nice, huge, rich houses that are there. And then goes way and then out goes east. Way out east, all the way to the airport. Um, I think all the way to the airport. Pretty sure out there. But gets all those big houses on Washington Street too. Um, State Farm is in it, although I don't know if State Farm's property taxes go towards it. I would assume that they don't. I would assume it's just residential, but I don't know that. Could be wrong about that. Anyway. It, it goes very, when you start getting into the apartments and to the poorer neighborhoods, it stops very quickly. When it's, when you're in the richer sides, it goes very far. And Washington School benefits, I think, I haven't heard any huge issues related to funding of this, of, of our school. And it just doesn't, it, it doesn't seem fair to me that there are other schools in the, other elementary schools in the district that would be hurting for funds that would be disadvantaged and, and ours is scoped in a way that it's got 
all this this you know big money property coming into it. it <laughs> so that goes to the district, and the district yeah. allocates funds equitably, in my opinion. Um, but when you when you move out into so sorry, wait, explain that to me. Maybe I maybe I had improper perception. Maybe the money doesn't flow that way. So the houses that are in that district that feeds that elementary school does that how the, the money goes to the district? The, the whole oh okay. Right? Maybe I don't need to feel that guilty about that. Don't feel that guilty about it. Okay, the, all right. The money, go, but but it's a it's a. It's not a great way to fund something. Sure, but right? just make sure I understand the actual funding because I guess I had a misconception. So the whole district everywhere brings it together and then allocates it back to the yes. schools. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's my understanding. I, I'm not a CFO or anything. Yeah. It's my understanding that it's a collective. Okay. Okay. And then it's redistributed. And I I think that I think that the schools around here do a good job of distributing money equitably. Okay. Okay. Um, I do think with that. I mean, so correct me if I'm wrong on this too. But I do think with that there does come to be a socioeconomic status or a racial element to how the districts are drawn. That it's like, well, as long as we're get pulling in upper middle class <laughs> state I, farm. <laughs> I'm know, not sure how. I don't know how it's drawn. I'm though, not but sure what goes into the values. Yeah. Of redrawing those things yeah. but what you know so like so here's 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 the difference district 87 is landlocked within unit 5 sure most growth is happening at the edges of bloomington normal which means that most new students are in those growth areas which is why unit 5 has had to build building after building sure. after building sure. after building Whereas District 87 has not had to do that, right? And so, it the the idea that the money is and the money is tied to property taxes to me doesn't seem like the best formula. Now I'm not mm-hmm. I don't know what a better formula is, and I'm not some sort of mathematic person that could figure that out. But I, you know, you asked me what what I would change. Yeah. And what I would change if if I could somehow wave a magic wand is to make sure. That when a child came to school, regardless of where they were in this nation, that they would get the same level of quality education so that we could really realize that promise Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. fulfill what is the American dream, right? Is to be able to work harder. And it's not dependent on just where where your parents live, right? right? I, I, I grew up in a place that was very small. It's a very different opportunity there, there are very uh, much smaller number of opportunities in the district where I went because of the size, right? Like, we didn't have an orchestra. There was no access to stringed instruments. Mm-hmm. It was woodwind, brass, or percussion, right? And and the choir was dependent on whether or not there were enough students for it. So sometimes, like, I think I had choir over lunch or something once. But then, like, you come to one of our larger districts like this, and there's AP classes, and there's dual credit classes, and there's mm-hmm. orchestra and band and symphony and, yeah. you know, and so I, I recognize that there's, you, you know, that's a, a Pollyanna view of the world, right, that everyone could have everything exactly the same, but yeah. that if at least, like, the opportunities were similar. Yeah, and, yeah. And we didn't have, we didn't have, you know, places that were crumbling in certain parts of the nation and other places that are brand new and fancy. Yeah. You know, I just think, I think it needs to be. It was, it was something we noticed in the over school system, overseas school system that we started to notice after a while was that most of the valedictorians 
in our schools were people who transferred in senior year mm. who went to massive schools where they could take honors or AP for everything. Yeah. And we didn't have that opportunity. Yeah. So, again, a military community, everyone's moving three years. There's nothing against them, but... Um, and that's like on the, that's on the far elite side of things. Who really cares if you're valedictorian or not? But it seems like an, it was an example of those people had those opportunities to. They had large enough school systems that were well funded to have classes that were honors weightlifting, and um, mm-hmm. they had AP physics, AP calc, AP yeah. stats, AP everything. Small school, smaller schools aren't going to have these types of things, and that's not the kids' fault, right? But it's going to affect the way right, it does affect them. Yeah, it, it really the does. They can and, do so. You know, there's some benefits to small schools, and there's benefit to big schools, and I, I just think I think it's hard to see the disparity in a in a place like Illinois, where we really do have strong school systems, mm-hmm. strong public schools. Yeah. Um, you know, the city of New Orleans, it's my understanding the city of New Orleans no longer has public schools, that everything has been privatized. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, you're talking about a whole different level of disparity mm-hmm. and, you know, paying to get access to more. So I, I, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I, I, think yeah. that's, I think it's the first major city to not have. Well, I think that, yeah, there are some people who would prefer that be the case everywhere. So yeah. um, I would fundamentally disagree with them yeah that's okay as, as i said before if we're able to compromise in the middle we'll probably make things better yeah work it out so well cool well in the last couple of minutes in the last uh, little bit of time we have here um for if people have made it this far and are into education this could be the bonus part <laughs> with with media media recommendations so i uh zelda breath of the wild <laughs> on the switch has basically got me through the, the entirety of the pandemic here. That's, yeah. been, that's been clutch for me. Yeah, I, uh, the Switch, we bought the Switch for our kids, man, at the beginning of the school year and uh, randomly, like, just as a reward for them. And, gosh, they've played Minecraft and Smash Bros, Breath of the Wild, and uh, it's been it's been really good for my children to get off of a Zoom meeting and onto a different screen, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what if... Um, I know, I know what I, I know why I've been obsessed with Breath of the Wild. But what, what's, what's caused you to spend? How many hours do you think you spent on it? I didn't look. Hundred some. Probably yeah. I didn't look. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I like to finish things. I like. Uh, I, I think that's in in education. We don't often see the end product. Um, you know, I teach Spanish one and Spanish three, so I, I teach the kids and they go away and then they come back and I teach them and then they, I don't see what they do at the end of their AP career or the end of their Spanish four career. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of finality in my work. Um, it's part of the reason I like making copies so much, um, is that I, I start and I finish. I'll make the copies for my whole department, um, because I like to make copies and, um, I like, uh, I like Breath of the Wild because I was able to finish tasks. Um, and that's a that's not the kind of thing that when you're a teacher, there's not a start and an end to it. You don't you don't ever end a relationship with a student. They uh, you don't you don't know how their lives are going to be affected by you. And so uh, I guess in in a strange way, playing Breath of the Wild, mowing the lawn, washing the dishes, doing a little laundry provides me with the need for finality that I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah for me, for me, it was. Um 
Breath of the Wild is open world, so you can basically just choose whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. You can just fly all over the place or ride a horse or yeah. do a quest. or You can get halfway through a quest and realize you're not in the mood to do it and just stop and go do something else. Oh, yeah, go, I can't do that. Go talk to some farmers. <laughs> I have to finish it. Finish the quest. Yeah. Yeah. But at a time when, I, when we're all locked in our home and just going through so many restrictions in life, the fact that it, I could pretty much do whatever I chose to do in that game was... was <laughs> Very, very rewarding to me. So um, I like to have Link wearing a mask. So always want to put a mask on. <laughs> Even if you're vaccinated, you can still wear a mask. Still, it's cool. Still wear a mask in there. So yeah. Well, thanks a lot for spending time yeah, chatting with thank me, you Carl. For inviting me. It's very fun. Yeah. Everyone, come out to Five Finance Drive and check out Little Beaver as well too. And also remember that we are on Patreon. So if you want us to. Um, if you want to keep helping us do what we do here and you like what we have, go ahead and say thank you uh, on, on Patreon for us. We'd really appreciate that. And we are done. <laughs>